Hi, I'm Charles Christoph Carter. And I'm his mom, Ellen Carter. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find original content covering everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast provider of choice. Thank you. In our last episode, Joe confronted Hunter Langtree about the three green gloves, one of which was found at Tim Harvey's house. During the interrogation, Hunter overheard Bill Bannister's widow, Sally, demand to speak to Joe about Bill's death. A catfight quickly ensued when Sally burst in on the interrogation and Hunter let her know, in no uncertain terms, that she had been Bill's longtime secret mistress. And now, without further ado, the next episode of Yard Work, written by Charles and Ellen Carter, narrated by Ellen Carter. Listener discretion is advised. Tim Harvey lay looking through half-open eyes at the beige and salmon-painted room. The still early morning sky and the dark silhouette of a leaf-bare tree framed by the only window in the room, looked like a photograph. The bed near the window was empty. He slowly turned his head. He could feel a dull ache in his chest and shoulder. He closed his eyes, took a breath. A sharp pain ran through his chest. He wondered if this was the way a man felt when he was having a heart attack. He held his breath for a moment, waiting for the pain to subside. A wave of nausea swept over him. He took short, shallow breaths, waiting for the sick feeling to pass. A few moments later, the nausea ebbed away. He heard the squeak of rubber on linoleum tile. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw women dressed in white, gliding by his hospital room, like ghosts silently appearing and disappearing. Occasionally, one would stare in at him and then quietly vanish. Tim lay there, trying to gather his thoughts. He didn't remember much as he drifted in and out of an opiate-like consciousness. He realized now that he was in the hospital and dimly remembered someone asking him questions, but he couldn't be sure of who it was or what he'd said. What day was it? He wasn't sure. He looked up and saw a button dangling from the side of the railing. Instinctively, he knew that the button was there to get someone's attention. With a shaky hand and some effort, he managed to grasp the button and push it. It wasn't long before one of the ghost-like figures drifted into his room, looked down at him with a smile, and said, You're awake. Would you like some water? He mouthed the word, Yes. She pushed a button and the head of the bed rose. Then she poured a small glass of water from the green plastic pitcher on his bedside table. Placing a straw in the glass, she held it to his lips. The first sip of water rushed into his hot, dry mouth, cooling and soothing it. 
He swallowed and winced with pain. You're a lucky man, Mr. Harvey. What? He paused, working to get the next words out. Day is it, he said, his voice low and raspy. It's Saturday. His stomach was feeling queasy and jittery again. He closed his eyes and inhaled slowly, cautiously. Would you like something for the pain? Yes. She left. A few minutes later, she returned with two pills in a small paper cup. She gave him another sip of water, and he swallowed them. You'll feel better in a little while. She glanced at her watch. Breakfast won't be served for another few hours. Why don't you try and go back to sleep, she said as she started out the door. Nurse? Yes, she said, turning back. Has my wife been here? I wouldn't know because I only work the night shift. If you need anything else, just press the button. He stared at the beige and salmon wall in front of him. Thank you, he said in a dry whisper, and she vanished. He leaned back against the pillow and watched as the night nurses passed back and forth outside his room, moving to finish their rounds, readying the floor for the next shift and the patients for the coming day. He was awakened by the clank of a metal tray. When he opened his eyes, he saw the attendant placing his breakfast down on the bedside table. The attendant smiled and lifted the cover. I hope you have a big appetite. There was a glass of orange juice, hot oatmeal, a cup of tea, a soft buttered roll, and a small container of applesauce. The pain had abated enough for him to eat his breakfast. After finishing the oatmeal and the applesauce, his head was clear. He could think. Everything didn't seem so muddled and fuzzy now. He felt a draft across his back. He hated wearing the Johnny coat they had put him into. Why hasn't Kathy Ann brought me my pajamas? Where is she? He asked himself. He could feel the anger start to rise in his gut. She knows I saw her with that knife. Saw her stab me. Maybe she's taken advantage of the fact that I'm in the hospital. Maybe she's taken off left me, hoping to be far away before I could get out of here. I told her if she ever left me, no matter where she went, I'd find her. With some effort and difficulty, he managed to pick up the phone. He dialed his number and waited, counting the rings. A male's voice answered the phone. Hello, the voice said. He wanted to scream. Who are you? What are you doing in my house? What are you doing answering my phone? But he didn't. In the back of his mind, he thought, maybe I just dialed the wrong number. There was one way to find out. Can I speak with Kathy Ann? The voice replied, who's calling? He didn't answer. After several moments, he heard Kathy Ann's voice say in the background, who is it? It's for you. He didn't give his name. Kathy Ann's voice said, hello, who is this? He didn't say anything. He was so angry he couldn't answer. He listened to the woman he'd married, the woman who had stabbed him, as she repeated, Hello? Who is this? He hung up. He lay there trying to figure out what to do. I have to get out of here. He carefully removed his IV and with some difficulty raised himself to a sitting position. He reached up and pushed the red button on his monitor, hoping that it would turn it off. It did. He disconnected the wires and, pushing the table away, slowly swung his feet over the side of the bed. He waited until the dizziness passed, and then he slowly stood up and went carefully across the room to the closet.
He pulled his things out of the brown paper bag the hospital had placed them in. He didn't bother putting on his clothes. Instead, he concentrated on shoving his feet into his loafers. Even that effort made him breathe hard. He felt dizzy again. He sat down on the arm of a large upholstered chair for a few moments. He could feel the perspiration on his forehead. When the dizziness had passed, he shuffled, walking on the back of his shoes like an old man to the door and peered out. There were people at the nurse's station, but they seemed much too busy to notice him. He left his room and pulled his door closed. It seemed like an eternity to get to the room just two doors down from where he was. It was the last room before the exit. He found an elderly man asleep in his room. He barely made it to the old man's night table. He was breathing in short, painful gasps. He felt like he was going to pass out again. He couldn't let them find him here. He had to fight the feeling. Breathing as deeply as he dared, fighting nausea, he held on tighter, his perspiration dripping onto the table. He felt unsteady on his feet, but he made his way to a chair and slowly lowered himself down onto it. He leaned his head back and closed his eyes. When he opened his eyes, he didn't know how long he'd been out. He wondered if they had missed him from his room. He looked across at the old man lying in the bed. The old man was staring at him with a vacant look on his face. Tim could imagine the surprise of the old guy waking up and seeing a stranger sitting there. How long have I been here? Tim asked. The old man didn't say anything. He just kept staring at him. The look on the old man's face was one of confusion. (laughs) Maybe he thinks I'm death waiting for him. That thought brought a smile to Tim's face. In a way, the old man would be right. He was death, but not for him. Tim slowly got up from the chair and shuffled across the floor to the closet. All the time, the old man's eyes were following him, but he was not saying a word. Tim opened the closet door and found the old man's long overcoat and slipped it from the hanger. I'm just going to borrow it, old timer, he whispered. The old man looked as if he were going to say something and then stopped. Tim smiled and gingerly put on the coat. Then he shuffled to the door, slowly stuck his head out to make sure no nurses were in the hall, and when he thought no one would see him, he slipped through the door marked exit. Tim turned the key in the ignition. The engine growled and coughed several times before sputtering to life. A cloud of blue smoke billowed from the exhaust of the 66 faded and rusting blue beetle. It was like a smoker with terminal cancer. The side windows and the front window were coated with condensation that had already turned to a thin layer of ice crystals. Whoever owned the car had solved the condensation on the rear window by installing an inexpensive rear window defroster that had probably been purchased from an auto supply store. With the accelerator pressed to the floor, the Beetle's top speed was no more than 30 miles an hour, and Tim had the accelerator pressed to the floor. This was the first car he had found in the hospital parking lot, with the keys still in the ignition. He doubted that anyone would miss the car for a while, but he knew he wouldn't be so lucky. He didn't think anyone had seen him slip out of his hospital room and off the floor, but he knew that it would only be a matter of time before the nurses missed him and started searching for him. Then they would notify the next of kin that he was missing. That would be Kathy Ann. He had to reach his house before that happened. The inside temperature of the car was only a few degrees warmer than the outside temperature. Tim tried turning the fan up, 
but there was a sound of metal hitting metal and a grinding noise. No heat came through the vent. He turned the fan off and a very weak stream of lukewarm air escaped. The steering wheel was cold. He was shivering, trying to stay warm. His hands were becoming stiff. He couldn't remove the thin layer of condensation and ice with his hands. He glanced at the passenger seat and saw pink mittens and an ice scraper lying there. It didn't take him long to figure out the owner of the car's routine. He picked up the ice scraper and scraped a patch of ice away on the front windshield so he could see the road. It hurt like hell. He put the scraper back in the passenger seat and picked up the mittens. They were too small, but he tried to put them on anyway. As he tried squeezing his hands into them, one of the famous slogans from the Simpson trial came back to him. Although these were mittens, he still thought it applied. If the mittens don't fit, you must acquit. His chuckle was followed by a short spasm of painful coughs. Like Simpson, he squeezed his hands into the mittens as far as they could go. They were better than nothing, he thought, as he grasped the frigid steering wheel of the terminally ill beetle. He missed the leather-wrapped steering wheel, the window defroster, the heater, and the leather-heated seats of his SUV. He liked his creature comforts. He picked up the scraper from the seat and began to attack the window again. With each swipe, he could feel a dull ache in his chest and shoulder that was beginning to spread. He started to cough again. His cough was deeper this time. He could taste blood in the back of his throat. He wiped spittle from his mouth with one of his coat sleeves and could see pink traces of blood. The high, raspy roar of the engine made it difficult for him to think. He took his right hand off the wheel and massaged his temple, just as he always did at the onset of a migraine. He had one thing fixed in his mind, to get home to Kathy Ann, to show her and whoever she was with that he was no fool. He turned the radio on to try and drown out the noise of the engine but the radio only picked up AM stations, and they drifted in and out, intermittent and filled with static. He felt sleepy and tired. He thought of Kathy Ann doing the things she did with him with another man. He became angry, and the fatigue and the sleepiness started to fade, but the drone of the engine was hypnotic and pulled him into a twilight state. He felt as though he had heavy weights on his shoulders, and he started to sink lower in his seat. He felt safe and warm now, almost as if he were floating. Things around him began to grow dim. A radio station suddenly came in crystal clear, breaking his hypnotic state. And here's a breaking news report from Grover's Notch. Deputy Bill Bannister's mutilated body was found last night by local authorities in a wooded area, approximately 200 yards off of Route 3. When asked if they had any leads, both Sheriff Joe Martin and head select man Bobby Donay refused to comment. The station faded out just as quickly as it had faded in, replaced by more annoying static. It took him a moment to realize where he was. He looked around the car and through the already icing patch he'd cleaned only moments before he saw that the car had drifted onto the shoulder of the road. He deftly brought it back onto the pavement. He picked up the scraper and slowly began to clear the patch again. He glanced into the rearview mirror. The dull plastic of the store-bought defroster made the rear window hazy at best. He saw something red flashing coming up fast on the outside. He kept his eyes on the road but continued to glance up at the mirror until he could be sure of what it was he was seeing. As the flashing lights got closer, 
he realized that it was a white SUV. Two cruisers flashing red and blue lights followed closely behind it. His heart jumped. Too soon. They caught me too soon, he thought to himself. The lead vehicle seemed to slow for a second as it came up alongside the beetle to give his car a once-over. He couldn't see out through the frosted side window, and he doubted that whoever was driving the SUV could see in. After a moment or two, it accelerated and rushed past him. He could only hope that they hadn't radioed his plates in for a vehicle check. The beetle swayed as the other two vehicles followed suit, their lights flashing as they closely trailed the SUV up Half Hollow Road. Tim breathed a sigh of relief. For a moment, he forgot how cold he was, the noise of the car, the radio that didn't work, and the pain that he was feeling. Lying in the hospital, drifting in and out of consciousness, he had had time to think about what had happened that night, and he remembered turning around and seeing Kathy Ann with a knife in her raised hand. He felt justified in what he was about to do. A smile crept across his face as he tried to hold back another coughing spasm. The three vehicles pulled into Conrad Hampton's driveway on the far side of his house, their lights off. They had been extinguished a quarter of a mile before reaching his driveway to avoid detection. Conrad came out of a side door to meet them. He extended his hand to Joe. Joe grasped it and clapped Conrad on the shoulder. Thanks for the call, Connie. I would have called you sooner, but my wife hadn't been feeling well. I was worried about her, and I was up just around sunrise. I was looking out the bedroom window, listening to her as she breathed. She has a rattle in her chest, you know. No, I didn't know, Joe replied, a touch of concern in his voice. Connie nodded seriously. Yeah, I'm just hoping it's not pneumonia. Well, anyway, I had put a call into her doctor, and I was waiting for him to call back. And I saw these leaves whirling around the field just behind the Harvey's house. I figured it must be gusting pretty strong out there, but I didn't hear it or see anything else moving. Those leaves were whirling all over the back meadow. They must have gone up some 20 feet or so. It was the strangest thing I've ever seen. Then something else caught my eye. It was someone creeping up Kathy Ann's kitchen steps. My wife broke into a real bad coughing spasm. I guess I forgot all about it. After I got her calmed down, I tried calling the doctor again. His service said that they'd given him the message and he'd be getting in touch with me. She was breathing kind of funny, and I gotta tell you, I was getting pretty worried. She asked me to get her some hot tea. I went down to the kitchen to fill the teapot, and I happened to look out the kitchen window. There he was, as big as you please, inside Kathy Ann's house, Greg Vivian. I'm sure it's Greg Vivian, because no one else around here except Dudley Meacham has red hair like that. I took the tea upstairs to my wife and made sure she drank it. It didn't seem to help much, so I called the doctor's answering service to leave a message that I was bringing her in this morning, and then I thought that I'd better call you and let you know about Vivian being right next door. Thanks, Connie. How's she doing? Not good. Not good at all. She's dressed. I just have to take her over to the doctor. Do you need any help? Connie thought for a moment. No, Sheriff. We'll be all right. Joe nodded and said, you take good care of her, Connie. He noticed that Connie was trying to fight back tears. Why don't you let me call the paramedics? No, she doesn't like riding in those things, but they can help her breathe better and get her there faster. Connie shook his head. I can get her to the doctor just as fast and she'll be calmer with me. 
Whatever you say, Connie, Joe replied. You can use the house if you need to, Sheriff. Just lock it up when you're finished. The extra key is under the mat. Thanks, Connie. Connie nodded and went back into the house. A few moments later, he came back out. His wife was with him. As soon as she met the cold air, she began coughing. It was a hollow, croaking sound more than a cough. He could understand Connie's concern. Todd, help Connie get Mrs. Hampton into the car. Joe waited the few minutes it took to get Mrs. Hampton into the front seat and for Connie to back out of the driveway and head down the road toward town. If he were to believe what Hunter Langtree said, then the green glove they'd found at the Harvey house was dropped by Vivian the night that Tim Harvey was stabbed. The statement Kathy Ann Harvey had made about someone coming up behind her and forcing her to stab her husband could be a lie fabricated to protect herself and Greg Vivian. She had said she hadn't seen who it was. Were Kathy Ann Harvey and Greg Vivian secretly seeing each other without Tim knowing? It wouldn't be the first time that the participants of an illicit affair had attempted murder. He'd seen it more than once. Tim Harvey initially stated that he saw his wife stab him, but then Harvey retracted that statement. Why? Could it have something to do with the bruises he'd seen on Kathy Ann's arm and face? Was she being abused? He knew he was going to have to talk with Tim again. Connie said he didn't see Kathy Ann Harvey, Joe said when Todd returned. But Harvey's SUV is still in the driveway, so let's assume she's still inside. Are we going in after her, Sheriff? Maynard asked. Joe knew that Maynard was nervous, but that was normal. Maynard was probably trying to anticipate what he had in mind. Todd's reaction was different. There was a quiet urgency about Todd. There had been since they had found the little Dalton girl. It had only intensified since finding Bill's body. Joe understood that how he conducted himself was important. Courage was contagious. Men would follow someone who possessed it. Well, we're not going to stand here with our thumb up our ass, Joe replied. If you do what I tell you, no one will get hurt and we'll have Vivian in custody. Joe knew he was about to take a big gamble, and if anything went wrong, if any one of his men or Kathy Ann got hurt, he knew that his career as sheriff in Grover's Notch was over. Beatrice Merriweather would see to that. He needed Vivian alive. There were unanswered questions that had to be addressed. Although he could see a possible link between Vivian and the murder of Judith Dalton and Bill Bannister, what stuck in the back of his mind was the apparent lack of connection between Vivian and the four bodies he'd found at Mirror Lake. Forensics had said that all six bodies seemed to have been mutilated in the same way, suggesting that the murderer was the same person in each instance. What was Vivian's connection to that family? There had to be something. He found it hard to believe that Vivian was killing people at random. Todd, do you have your rifle with you? Yes, Sheriff, it's in my cruiser. Good. I want you to get it and find a good spot near Connie's kitchen window. That's where he was when he saw Vivian. Make sure you can't be seen. What if we get caught in a situation in there, Sheriff? Maynard asked. Vivian doesn't escape. Do you understand, Todd? I understand, Sheriff, Todd replied. Maynard, you're going to go around to the kitchen door, and I'm going to take the front door. Let me get my rifle and give you a few minutes to get into position, Todd said. Joe nodded. The young deputy sprinted to his cruiser. When Todd returned with his rifle, Joe glanced at his watch and then at Todd. 
he gave the young deputy one final nod, and Todd entered the Hampton house. Maynard, are you wearing a watch? Maynard held up his left wrist. Sure am. Good. I want you to work your way around to the back of the house. Stay low. Once you're in position, wait four minutes, and then carefully enter the house through the kitchen door. I don't want you taking any chances. You have to come through that door quiet and low. Do you understand? Maynard nodded his head yes. And remember, Todd has his rifle trained on the Harvey house. If things go south, you try and give him a clean shot. Sure thing, Maynard replied. Joe nodded. Let's go. And now, a preview of our next episode. Joe makes another attempt to corner Greg Vivian. Will he finally capture the elusive fugitive? Please consider joining our Patreon site and becoming a Dreadnought. For only $3 a month, our Dreadnoughts get early access to free episodes, exclusive periodic commentary by the authors of the books and the creators of the podcast, exclusive access to episodes of the second half of each book as those episodes are released, and access to the entire back catalog of episodes as our podcast goes forward. Click the link in the show description now to become a dreadnought and aid in the conversion of the uninitiated masses.